So hello and welcome to the Contemporary Spiritual Life podcast by Arate House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn and in this episode we turn our minds towards the one Eastern tradition which I think we can all agree has truly flourished in the West and that is the tradition of yoga. So everyone knows about yoga and a great many people actually participate in it. But as we mentioned in the early episodes, there seems to be something of a large abyss between the historical Indian tradition of yoga, which has its roots in the early Upanishads and flowered especially under the hand of Patanjali in the 8th century, to what we see and perhaps practice now in the West. And I think we could try and understand this through any number of lenses, from historical points of view, sociological, political, and philosophical. And we we'll certainly try and traverse through some of this terrain in this episode. But in the same breath, I think the thing that we're most interested in rescuing and maybe giving voice to is the actual inner or contemplative experiences of a genuine yoga practitioner. So to help us navigate these complexities, we're very fortunate to be joined by Peter Ushvari, who has been a yoga practitioner and teacher for over 20 years, and who runs the City Yoga Centre in Inner Melbourne. And Peter has also cultivated a very rich scholarly background, holding a PhD in philosophy, and in fact um, was my very first tutor as an undergrad in philosophy, giving me something of a lifelong love of the tradition. And I have to say, Peter, by some margin, the best tutor that I had. So it's wonderful to see you again. And thank you very much for giving us your time and joining the show. Hello, Toby. Thank you. Now, I think maybe it's best to start just getting, giving the listeners some sense of how your journey into yoga began. Um, I remember talking to you a decade or two ago, and I think it had something to do with martial arts. Is that correct? Uh, that's more or less right. Um, let me first um, say that, uh, that that introduction is um, perhaps a little bit undeserved. I wouldn't claim to be a genuine yogi by any stretch of the, the, uh, the meaning, um, though it's something uh, to which I certainly aspire, uh, perhaps as some kind of platonic ideal maybe. Uh, but um, yeah, as far as your recollection goes, uh, it's almost right. Um, I started with fencing. Fencing, yeah. Fencing. Uh, my um, sort of somewhat of a national sport in Hungary and my uh, grandfather was uh, in fact a fencing master in the Hungarian army. Uh-huh. So it was more or less uh, no foreordained that I should do fencing as well. I, I remember he, I was about seven when he started teaching me, um, though now that I look back on it I think the, uh, the foundations were laid a lot earlier than that. Uh, first toy that I remember ever having was a little wooden sword that he made for me. Oh wow. Yeah. So, and I think the, um, the first lessons I had were, uh, were cleverly disguised forms of play. Um, anyway, I, uh, under his guidance, uh, I, um, I went on to fence competitively at a pretty high level. Uh, but in the course of that, I uh, ended up injuring both my knees. So I had to stop. Um, I uh, talked to various physios and doctors and, and specialists, and they all advised me that unless I had my knees operated on, uh, then I wouldn't be able to walk. Really? That serious? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, eventually in time, right? Um, if I continued doing what I was doing. Mm. So um, I was in my mid-twenties at this point, and uh, 
the, the thought of uh, not being able to walk, um, let alone not be able to compete in the Olympics or something like that. So you're aspiring to compete in the Olympics yeah. as a fencer? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that, so that was all horrifying to me, uh, of course. But uh, on some intuitive level, I guess, I must have known that uh, the surgery would be even worse. So, um, so I decided to, uh, to stop, at least for a while. Um, I had become acquainted with yoga already uh, through a family friend, Shandor Ramata, and uh, he had offered to teach me uh, a bit of yoga some years before, uh, along with the inducement that it uh, would benefit my sporting performance, which to a certain extent it did. Um, after my injury, he also persuaded me that the yoga could uh, heal uh, that which was damaged, and sure enough, he was good as his word. Um, what he neglected to tell me was that it might also, uh, somewhere along the line, um, redefine my attitude towards competitive sport. So uh, at some point during my convalescence, I decided to quit. Um, around about the same time, I became acquainted with uh, martial arts through uh, Aikido and uh, later on um, Batodo, which is the art of the Japanese sword. So now that I was no longer training 30 hours a week, I, uh, I decided to split my time between the yoga and the martial arts. Um, so you see, it was nothing at all like some lofty ideal of becoming a genuine yogi. It was more uh, pragmatic and uh, self-interested than that. But nonetheless, there uh, must have been tremendous discipline in, you know, in aspiring to be an Olympic level fencer, that amount of diligence and training and so forth. Um, did that sort of naturally then fit into your to the yoga path? Yeah, sure. So the the, um, the discipline was something that I found uh, found natural uh, anyway. Maybe uh, something that I acquired because I started so early. I'm not sure. But um, that that element of of uh, yogic practice uh, certainly is something that that you know I took to pretty easily. Um, on the other hand, the um, various pressures on one's body that something like fencing has uh, meant that I became very stiff in certain areas. Mm. So one might see that as a deficit. Um, you know, swings and roundabouts. Mm. You mentioned the, your teacher there, Shandor Remet. Mm. Some people may know him under his teaching name, Natanaga Zanda. I didn't know he was a family friend. Family friend and um, somewhat of a distant relative. Uh, his uh, mother comes from the same extended family as my, my uh, father, um, though that connection is pretty, um, pretty distant, yeah. So what's interesting to me there is that you're sort of drawn in by your own admission, sort of under a kind of competitive logic to improve yeah. your competitive powers in, in your sporting discipline. And also for very kind of material considerations, like yeah, to absolutely. fix yeah. your knees sure. and to you know, kind of improve your, your bodily form and so forth. And you mentioned there that he's, he managed to change your attitude to some degree. Was that a long process or how, how did that happen? Subtle nudges along the way. Yeah. Um, perhaps that was intentional, maybe it was incidental, I'm not sure. Uh, it's a curious kind of um, relationship that exists between a teacher and a student, you know, um, that these things happen organically. Uh, mm. So it's sort of just an organic process. Yes. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about the form of yoga that uh, Shandor is it? Shandor, Shandor, yes. Shandor invented. 
called Shadow Yoga, and that's what you teach here in inner city Melbourne. Uh, that's right, Toby. Um, so I think uh, what we need to be clear about first is that Shadow Yoga is a kind of Hatha Yoga, pretty much like most of the forms of yoga which have been uh, appropriated by the West. Uh, and um, no matter how that appropriation has played itself out, the uh, classical texts of Hatha Yoga are pretty clear that um, what the, uh, the aim of yoga is, um, or at least the aim of Hatha Yoga, is the cultivation of what they call the Vajrakaya, or a diamond body, or adamantine body. So the word body here uh, needs to be understood not just as the gross physical body, but mm -hmm. also the subtle and causal aspects of the body as well. Uh, so what we're talking about is the, um, the conditioning or refining or the tempering perhaps of uh, both internal and external power. Um, the uh, Japanese martial arts, for example, speak of tanren, which is literally the forging of power. So the question you might want to ask then is, is, is why one might want to uh, cultivate power in the first place. And I guess here we're on, on ethical or philosophical ground. The um, Yogi Svadmarama in the Hatha Yoga Pralipika makes it clear that um, the Hatha Yoga is in this way only a, a ladder or a gateway to, uh, to Raja Yoga. And Patanjali says more or less the same thing when he indicates in um, the very first line of the Yoga Sutra that, that he's now going to impart some discussion about, about yoga. So, so the suggestion is that there was something that went before that some prior understanding or, or uh, prerequisites that had been already attained. Well, I suppose something that comes up for me there is well, this question of the relationship between the traditional forms of Hatha Yoga and you know, that which has been codified by Patanjali and so forth, and Shadow Yoga as it manifested in 20th century Europe and the Americas and Australia and so forth. To what degree is, is Shadow Yoga in tune with that kind of traditional form? And to what degree is it, does it represent something of a rupture or um, a discontinuity? Well, let's just say that the, the kind of yoga, the Raja Yoga or Royal Yoga, that is uh, talked about in, in classical, uh, the classical tradition is um, something that can be um, perhaps seen as a um, technology of self-awareness or uh, maybe even the, the result or product of that, that technology. Um, if you want to put this another way, um, a bit more simply, it's, it's a, a way of discriminating the self from everything that isn't the self. Now this self is often seen as, uh, or the essence of this self is often seen as, as pure light. And if this should sound a little bit weird or or a bit vague perhaps, then um, maybe think of the, uh, the folk intuitive ways we often represent thoughts in cartoons, for example, as like a light bulb above someone's head, or, or we speak of someone having a bright idea, or, um, or even the word enlightenment itself has that, that deep intuition embedded within it. So, um, so if the self is, um, is seen this way, then uh, the trouble is that there are various things which obscure or uh, occlude or even eclipse that light. And in the, the uh, yoga, yogic ontology, uh, these things are called um, koshas, 
the word is uh, usually rendered in, in English as, um, as layer, but it's perhaps best seen as a kind of entrapment. So these entrapments are um, interweaving the uh, gross physical and subtle realms and they uh, regulate and integrate various life functions so though they're seen as limitations they're also essential parts of the human condition. So the first of these is, um, is the anamaya kosha, the, um, which is the, the gross physical structure and also that which supports it. Then there's the uh, pranamaya kosha which deals with the acquisition of power. The manamaya kosha uh, deals with the um, processing ability of the intellect. The vijnanamaya kosha deals with the uh, in more the intuitive mind. And then the last one, the anandamaya kosha, is about the uh, acquisition of uh, or the attainment of joy or bliss. So it's easy to see how people are. Um, some people are are hooked or obsessed with one or more of these. Mm. These, these levels or, or stuck on, on, on some aspect of them. Just to clarify, does Shadow Yoga then more or less uh, affirm that basic yoga ontology? That's right. So where I'm going with this is if these things obscure the light, right? Obviously that which obscures the light also casts a shadow. And, and it's only by examining the, uh, the effects of that that one can uh, reverse the process, as it were, and, uh, and begin to uh, remove those obstructions and return to the um, well, the original light that shines through. Can I just clarify that? And I do apologise to our listeners. I don't have a great background in the yoga tradition, but if I'm making sense of that, it sounds like the light is the purusha, the true self or yep. the true mind, and these other koshas are um, the pra- prakriti. Is that correct? Uh, more or less. The uh, the yoga, of course, uh, adopts the ontology of, of, of metaphysics of Samkhya. So the, um, when I was talking about the difference between the self and everything that isn't the self, you can explain that in, in Samkhya terms as the distinction between Purusha and Prakriti. But the elements of um, Purusha might include things like the Koshas. Uh, the attachments themselves, of course, belong to Prakriti. The, um, oh, I see. The modifications so of yeah. they're actually manifestations of Purusha sure. to some degree, and that's why there's this idea of it casting its shadow, and you need to work with those. Um, that's right. That's right. Well, that answers a question that I was interested to know, which was you know the relationship between shadow yoga and more traditional Indian forms of yoga. Right. And the answer there seems to be actually a very very close relationship, and shadow yoga is you know very much a a form which is continuous with those more traditional forms. Yeah, well, it's a tricky thing because um, much of the yoga tradition has been um, uh, eroded uh, and uh, and watered down by um, by about three and a half centuries of colonial occupation. In mm. uh, first by um, the Dutch, then the French, and the English. So um, there's a lot there that's been lost. Uh, we know, for example, that uh, a lot of it just moved north and found its home in Buddhist Nepal and Tibet. Uh, and what remained was either watered down or, um, or went underground and is now only found in uh, various pockets um, here and there where authentic yoga is practiced. Uh, 
But you can see elements of this in, in other traditional arts, like uh, traditional Indian martial arts or performing arts, like Bharatanatya and Katakali. And, uh, and there are traces of this that you can find on, um, on uh, visual representations in temple, temple walls and stuff. Uh, so if you look at the artwork, it's there. And what one finds is that, that the, um, the beginners are given, when they first approach an art like this, they're, um, they're given not what you might expect from looking at uh, popular books on yoga. Right? Most of that, believe it or not, has been um, appropriated from, uh, from Western calisthenics uh, in the 20th century. Oh, really? Absolutely. So, so any one of the, um, the sort of iconic yoga uh, poses that, that, that you might see in popular uh, yoga literature nowadays, uh, well, none of that's in any of the classical texts. Really? Yeah. Wow. The classical texts, they're, um, they list very, very few postures indeed. Um, if you look at the Hatha Pradipika, uh, they uh, only give 15 or 16 asanas. The Geranda Samhita lists maybe double that. And uh, the Yogyanya Valkya talks about only eight. So, of Would you say that the asanas are maybe not that central in that... Um... They're central. They're central, but uh, there's a lot more to the picture. And uh, also the message is that, um, that you, don't, you don't need a you know, vast assortment of them. Only a few of them are, uh, are appropriate for the average person to practice. And uh, even then, you only need you know, a few on any given day. So the message is that um, a skillful practitioner only needs a few tools. The skill, however, is knowing which tool to use for which job. And presumably to actually master them completely rather than practicing a wide variety. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So where all this begins in, in traditional methods, uh, whether we're looking at something like yoga in its original context or, uh, or let's say the martial arts, the beginner is, is, is given very simple joint warm-ups uh, squats in both dynamic and static variations, uh, then set drills or uh, forms that they practice in increasing order of complexity, and, and once these are all mastered, only then do they progress to something a little bit more elaborate. So that's all groundwork, that's mm -hmm. all preparation, and that may take anywhere from uh, you know, a few months to a few years to, uh, to acquire, to master. That, together with uh, the more advanced practices one learns after that, uh, can equip the, um, the uh, practitioner with a sound and healthy uh, body uh, that can um, sound a healthy vessel, let's say, that can uh, assist them on their, on their journey. So in some ways one may say that uh, Shandor, who uh, is the founder of this style of yoga, um, didn't so much uh, invent this as, as, as reintegrate what was already there, uh, he just needed to investigate along the fringes of yoga and um, reacquire those uh, original principles. Oh, that's a very interesting answer. And he went to India at some point, didn't he, to learn? He did. He studied in India for a long time in the 70s with, um, he was one of the preeminent students, uh, in fact, of uh, BKS Iyengar, okay. who's one of the main sort of icons of, of yoga here in the West. Uh, so much so that uh, yeah he was he was one of his premier guys. I mean, I think he used to send him to various places to teach. Uh, that all came um, 
gradually came to an end when Shandor began to see that uh, that that style or that way of working wasn't really uh, doing much for him, and in fact, it was creating distortions in, in various uh, various ways. So he began to investigate other things, um, not just the uh, the uh, various styles of yoga, but also um, the various cultural arts, um, the different uh, uh, schools of, of Indian medicine, both Ayurveda and Siddha traditions. Um, and uh, aside from India, he sort of travelled elsewhere. Um, he, uh, I know he practiced a lot of um, other martial arts as well uh, in uh, Japan and uh, and elsewhere. It's like quite a remarkable man in that well, he, he has he a kind of scholarly polymath, but uh, also an autodidact. Um, he uh, hasn't had any sort of formal academic training in any of this, mm. uh, but he's nevertheless managed to, uh, to acquire that, that knowledge that, that few academics have. I think mainly because he has uh, experienced it, walked the path rather than just mm. uh, read about it in books. Well, that's a very, very interesting answer. And it, uh, it does sort of, I mean, you maybe gave this a little bit before as well, um, I'm sort of interested in asking you whether shadow yoga adopts the classical yogic frame of intending towards moksha or enlightenment, and very clearly it does. Yes. Um, insofar as it adopts the, uh, or that all yoga adopts the, um, the Samkhya distinction between Purusha and Prakriti, one might say that yeah, yoga orients itself towards towards liberation. Um, the idea being that the um, our benighted condition, let's say, uh, arises from uh, falsely identifying with 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 things which belong to another realm, uh, what philosophers might call, let's say, a category mistake. Mm. So, um, so Purusha, um, rather than residing within its own essence, uh, projects something else, right, which belongs to Prakriti, and and identifies with that. And this is uh, the origin uh, of. Uh, of suffering. And that's central to the shadow yoga approach? I wouldn't say it's uh, clearly um, enunciated like that, mm. but it's definitely there. It forms the backbone. It's there if you want to find it. But then the, the, yeah. it's also true that many people maybe don't want to go to that level of depth. Um, or it might no, take that's some right. time before they get there. I mean, there. There, there's a lot of, of uh, theoretical uh, background which uh, is there to um, to discover, um, uh, which is unfortunately um, uh, not present in, in, in many contemporary uh, schools of yoga, um, not just this this metaphysical background, but um, but a sort of accurate knowledge of, of how the subtle body works, for example, and the uh, the thirteen main channels or nadis, uh, the five main winds or values that blow through them. Marmas or vital junctions, which uh, regulate the health of the individual, as well as things like the, um, the faces of the moon, perhaps, which, um, which, uh, in their fluctuations, affect the uh, the life force. So, uh, this is all this all forms part of, let's say, the yogic anatomy. It's maybe not something that the average beginner needs to know, mm. uh, but it's there for them to investigate later on down the track. So. And that seems to be what happened to you, in that you came in, you know, not with those sorts of considerations anywhere near the forefront of your mind, but then over the course of pursuing your That's right. path. 
and I think a, um, a good teacher will allow that to happen in a natural, organic way, rather than imposing it on a student. So um, I don't think um, I don't think money needs to be confronted with uh, with excessive uh, metaphysical uh, ontological baggage uh, right at the beginning. It's enough enough to uh, to consider just the uh, sort of healthful or uh, physical aspects of it, and then later on down the track, maybe uh, one's curiosity is sparked by uh, by different things. Sounds to me like, and I think this is true across many of the traditions which have migrated from India or the East to the West, that there's kind of a necessary pragmatism about how one comes to acquire confidence or true knowledge about them. Just in the sense that, um, you know, as you say, you can read things in a text or you can listen to what a particular teacher or master says, but unless you gain personal experience about, for example, um, the subtle body, and you, you feel quite viscerally the movement of winds or something when you do a particular asana, then it's like, aha, yeah, there must be some truth here because I'm actually f experiencing this very directly. So would you say in your case, that, there, that, that pragmatism, there's a kind of pragmatic... Um... Absolutely. It's, um, it is first and foremost a practical discipline. Uh, there's no way of avoiding that. Uh, you can't just um, you know, read about it in books. You have to actually do the practice. So as long as one is practicing in a way which isn't mechanical and, uh, and unaware, that is to say one is reflecting on, on the practice and, uh, and making that somehow uh, relevant in, in one's life, then uh, these things start to show themselves. So I think the reason why we have, um, have this body of knowledge about the subtle uh, elements, about the uh, channels and the winds and so on is, uh, is not because someone like cooked it up one day or just imagined it. Uh, they, were, they were empirical researchers who, uh, who by dint of hard work in their investigation uh, saw these things or experienced these things. So they're helpful as guides to someone who hasn't experienced them. Um, but yeah, the practice needs to happen. Yeah, so it's one's own experience itself that makes it true or real or yeah. accessible, possible. I'm just shifting gears a little bit. Uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, Peter has a background in Western philosophy and was also a very fine teacher, taught me phenomenology as an undergraduate. I'm wondering if you see any um, interesting continuities between certain currents in European or Western thinking and what you've uncovered as a yoga teacher and practitioner. Uh, certainly, um, I might look at my own uh, understanding, uh, drawn from Western philosophy, as some kind of blend of, of, of humanism and, uh, and, on the one hand, empirical realism and transcendental idealism on the other, um, perhaps with a bit of Nietzsche's nihilism thrown in there too. Uh, I think this is essentially compatible with everything I understand about yoga. If I had to name a few thinkers who were especially compatible or, um, or somehow fit closely to that, that, more closely to that tradition, I guess I'd name Heidegger somewhere in that list, uh, especially with his notion of, of, of um, being as the, the essential ground of, uh, of the existence of things. Um, 
though I'm sure Hardy would, would pretty much dismiss all of your egregious argument metaphysical. Um, for similar reasons, you might want to add uh, someone like Husserl, particularly the early Husserl, uh, maybe Sartre. Um, Schopenhauer's pessimism somewhere oh, really? in that mix. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, life is suffering, right? Mm. Um, there are well, elements. there's a rich connection. I just forgot from over there. It's yeah, very influenced by. Oh, absolutely. But yeah. it's we overlook the fact that that around that time there was a huge impact on German philosophy, in particular of of, uh, of Eastern mm. thinking, particularly Buddhism. Um, Vedanta especially, and uh, and also Chinese thinkers, look at Hegel, for example. Mm. Um, there are elements, uh, the sort of more um, ecstatic, trance-like elements of Nietzsche's thinking, which belong there too. Um, I think that's the figure that stands out a bit for me, um, in that you commit to do a PhD on Nietzsche. Um, yeah, I, I struggle to see how they're, how they're connected. Maybe you could cash out what you think. Is it, is it the idea of, um, I suppose you've got his ontology of the self being composed of these many different drives, and this idea of recognising that maybe as a koshers or something, and some attempt of mastery through them, or am I just barking up the wrong tree there? I think you could probably argue something like that, um, but then thinking more clearly about Nietzsche, one also has to account for his criticism of the ascetic ideal, which wouldn't square very well at all with, with the yoga. But certainly the, um, the notion of the self as, as, as composed of, of competing drives is consistent with, with uh, some kind of yogic Samkhya style ontology too. Um, nothing practical there though. Um, mm unlike, let's say, the, um, the Stoics, uh, Epicurus. Uh, I have a friend who uh, has done considerable work in this area and he informs me that, that they had um, some kind of uh, practical element or practical uh, set of, of, of uh, exercises to accompany their teaching, something a little bit like meditation. Um, one might argue also that uh, Socrates at least uh, insofar as he's uh, represented by um, Plato and Xenophon, lived a kind of yogic existence. Um, there's that, uh, that uh, curious, perhaps even comic, uh, uh, scene right at the beginning of the symposium when he's on his way to what is essentially a you know, mother of a blowout party, <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he gets sidetracked uh, while talking to a friend and so he draws along, draws to the side of the road in this secluded spot and stands on one leg while he's lost in thought. He does get horribly drunk too, doesn't he? Or is that just well, everyone around him? Everyone else gets horribly drunk. He's the last man standing and uh, the last one to leave when the sun rises. Mm. Everyone else is, you know. So um, I don't know what all of that involved, um, but it's something that, uh, that, that struck a board with me anyway. Yeah, and what about going the other way, thinking about what, I mean, the yoga tradition particularly, but maybe Indian thinking and practice more generally, might be able to bring to the table to Western thinking? Well, I think um, uh, I sort of touched upon that just now uh, when I mentioned that, uh, that, that none of these thinkers um, prescribes any sort of uh, uh, practical uh, embodied practice, as it were. That, that uh, supports their their thinking, and 
and I think this is perhaps what's lacking in, in, in Western academic circles. Uh, that's not to say, of course, that, that, that Western philosophy is opposed to exercise or, or, or disparages uh, you know, well-being or in some way privileges you know, one over the other. Uh, I'm sure that's not true, but what I'm saying is that, that there's nothing which is integral to their thinking which has a practical component to it. Yeah, and then so in the same breath, a kind of over-reification of thinking, of rationalism, of the mind, and something of a neglect of the fact of being embodied. That's right. I mean, for all their talk about the body, especially in, um, in uh, when we uh, look at the phenomenological tradition um, and sort of continental uh, variants of that, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of talk about the body, mm. but there isn't it's much. still talking, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, exactly. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's definitely been that movement, you know, following Spinoza and then you know, into Deleuze and Merleau-Ponty and these sorts of figures to try and invert that kind of long-held reification of mind or thinking in, um, in Western thinking. But it does end up being still highly theoretical. Exactly. And I think this is a, a huge problem. Mind you, it cuts the other way as well, and uh, and too much um, practical, uh, too much yeah, embodied practice without any of the uh, intellectual theoretical understanding uh, is um, is just sort of empty exercise, devoid of, of any meaningful content. I mean, I, I've um, going on this theme. I mean, it's a, any kind of dualism between mind and matter, and maybe that's a bit rough and coarse, but I think it might work well enough for the discussion. But when I look at um, how yoga has taken stock in the West and become you know, a huge industry and something that everyone knows about and a lot of people practice, I often look at it and think it has made the other kind of reification and sort of reified the body and almost dispensed with the idea that there is something like parusha or thinking or mind or higher self or whatever you want to call it. Um, do you think that's the case, or am I misreading it, or being overly critical? Or? Oh, I think it's absolutely the case, and it's probably even a lot worse than you've uh, you've kindly stated uh, here. Um, most of uh, what you see in the yoga world today is little more than than physical exercise, um, or minimally some kind of lip service to uh, to uh, theoretical principles that they've read in a book or heard about in a podcast, for example, uh, or something like that. Um, if you look at um, the, uh, the classical ways of, well, the classical tradition, uh, though, uh, yoga is always seen as a, as uh, supported by three, or composed of three, uh, three branches, as it were. And the first of these, the Bahiranga Sadhana, or external practices, include uh, asana, the postures which uh, have been promoted here in the West um, almost exclusively uh, or exclusive to all others and uh, but it also includes the shatkriyas or cleansing practices which which are done prior to that. It also includes uh, the process of nadi shuddhi which is the, um, the purging of the subtle channels of, of energetic and psychic disturbances. But then we have the antaranga sadhana, or external, sorry, internal practices, um, which include pranayama, falsely identified in uh, contemporary yoga as just breathing exercises, um, 
it's more correctly understood as, as the re refinement and gradual restraint of all breathing so that the life force can uh, circulate freely within the channels. Um, then there's mudra and karana, the um, uh, gestures and, and rhythmic movements which, which affect the, or influence the subtle body. And lastly, the paramanta, paramantaranga sadhana, which is beyond all that, beyond form, and perhaps also therefore beyond the scope of this kind of discussion. But one can see from this that, that most contemporary yoga really only makes use of uh, one part of the first third of, mm. these, of these limbs. Um, and the rest is uh, either ignored or not even, not even known about. And is that wholly bad though? I mean, I, I look at it and I, one could easily be very critical of that for lots of reasons. Um, you know, for for colonialist reasons and for reasons of the kind of crass materialism and capitalism that's sort of rampant in our age. But I think one could also look at it a little more charitably and say, well, just doing asanas totally misses the point of what yoga is all about, but it's still beneficial. Or do you think maybe it's dangerous or problematic in certain ways? I think it can be beneficial. It can also be dangerous and problematic. Because, um, like I said before, these things are tools or a kind of equipment, and any kind of equipment can be used to um, to heal and build as easily as it can be used to destroy, or the other way around. So there's an element of danger there, um, and it's only through skillful use that one can negotiate that that treacherous those treacherous waters. And it's a danger there on the level of technique, and therefore kind of causing some kind of problem, health problems on the, on the inner levels as far as the winds go? Or is it more on the level of you know, intention and, and ethics? It could be that, but it's, um, the way I see it, it's more than likely the, um, the obsession with, with one element or one side of things uh, rather than a more holistic approach. So, um, you know, if you take yoga to be just the asanas and you uh, pump out all the things uh, mechanically, then that mechanical work, um, in the way that someone might, you know, pump out weights to the gym, for example, mm. um, which is which is unreflective and and not at all self-aware. Uh, these can lead to injury. Firstly, because um, mechanical behaviour has that element there already, and secondly, because mechanical behaviour uh, it may get you there, it may just leave you disillusioned. Because you're not making enough progress, or, or you, you know, you measure your success in terms of, of, of how flexible you are, or you know whether you can do something that the next person, you know, on, in the class can do uh, or can't do. So when you start uh, comparing yourself and competing like that, then you're bound to uh, to um, encounter trouble. And I suppose, from a soteriological point of view, you might be doing something very dangerous in that you're weaving yourself further Absolutely. into blindness or into a kind of the realm of prakriti. Sure, yeah. sure. But um, if your goal is, uh, is, is enlightenment, if that's what you want out of this, the equipment is there. As long as you have someone who's competent, who has also walked some part of that journey there to teach you how to use that equipment. Um, if you don't want enlightenment, if you just want to be healthy, then of course you can enjoy those benefits too.
So I don't want to impose that on anybody. It's up to them. Yeah, so it can work on a more sort of temporal level, so long as it's you know, under good guidance. It can work to some extent, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I've personally practiced yoga at the gym a little mm. bit. I mean, I've got a background in sort of another tradition, uh, but I found it pretty beneficial for keeping um, you know, the pranas kind of smooth and supple and so forth. Um, Look, I've taught at gyms before mm. in the past, uh, and um, or to think of one example, um, uh, lady rocks up, she's, um, she's uh, 16 weeks pregnant and she says, oh, it's her first time, you know, and the person, the, uh, person at reception said, oh, they should do yoga and, and their, uh, their GP also said that yoga would be beneficial for them. So in that gym environment, if, you're, um, if it's your first time doing something like this, you could, you could set yourself up for serious injury. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and I'm not saying it's bad or wholly bad, but, um, well, a lot, a lot of the time, uh, you know, we just have gym instructors or some, some who's, let's say, a personal trainer, and they think, well, okay, here's something that looks essentially like a stretching that they do, so let's teach a yoga class. So there's definitely dangers there. It seems to be maybe a lot depends on the teacher, quality of the teacher. Uh, very true. Uh, I've been extremely fortunate to find highly qualified, uh, uh, preeminent teacher in the yoga or also in the martial arts. I've been fortunate for uh, the same reasons. Getting back to a theme which uh, emerged a little earlier in our discussion, connected with this idea of gaining pragmatic knowledge about what it is you're practicing. And thinking about your personal journey from uh, someone at a high level of fencing into martial arts and so forth, into yoga practice for mending the body. What, I mean, you might want to speak about this, or you might want to just tiptoe around and I'm fine with that, but what sort of things shifted you from those more competitive and maybe materialistic intentions and understandings to something more contemplative? Like, in other words, what, when did yoga become a contemplative practice for you and what was it that enabled it? I suppose that happened by degrees. Um, I was more or less already uh, predisposed towards contemplation, uh, being um, somewhat of a scholar uh, as well. Um, but principally what drew me to yoga were, were the, um, what I saw at the time, the, uh, the weirdly esoteric elements of it, um, which I saw as, as very strange and, and therefore in some way appealing or austere. But oh, appealing. right. So it's sort of you're curious to look yeah, at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like I said, gradually by degrees, I, I began to see that there was, there was more to the picture. Um, and along the way, my uh, teacher, Shandor, gave me the occasional nudge to make sure I was on the right path. I can think of one example. Early on, we were uh, sitting in a car, and uh, I think I was complaining about some elements of, of the yoga practice that I found challenging or, or a little bit vague. And he turned to me, driving at full speed in traffic, and said, uh, you know your problem, Peter, uh, you were weighed down by too much scepticism. And this stunned me, 
because, of course, I cut my teeth reading Descartes and David Hume, mm. and, and I was uh, deeply impressed by, by scientific materialists, uh, the rationalists, and I thought, well, you know, surely you can't be too sceptical. Surely, surely you have to begin with, 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 with an element of doubt, right? And I thought about this a lot at the time, and eventually I, I, I realized that, yes, it may be good to begin with a little bit of doubt, but, but in most areas of human endeavor, progress has been made by the occasional inductive leap. Hmm. That's very nicely put. There needs to be a kind of openness and a, te a testing in a way. So, so doubt, doubt can't be the sort of closed off uh, rejection that one finds in much of, uh, of, of Western philosophical skepticism. You have to challenge, but then you also have to maintain that openness to accept something that, that by empirical evidence, works. It gets a little bit canty in there, doesn't it? There's sort of uh, some line somewhere, and then there has to be room for, you know, an unknowability. Yeah. And your mind, you know, you have to know where the line is, I suppose, yeah. don't you? Well, of course. I mean, we can't know everything, and that which we do know, for good Kantian reasons, uh, we know because we are the, the sort of embodied thinking beings that we are, and while this presents us with, with various limitations, it also, at the same time, provides us with the very material uh, to research, and also, by that same token, the, um, the tools with which to conduct that research to overcome those limitations. And the, and the real answer there is it's a matter of degrees, you know, in accord with that um, some elements of doubt and scepticism, some elements of openness and curiosity. And what ends up working ends up working. Yeah. Patanjali even says this in, in the first book of the Yoga Sutra. Uh, you know, there are various, various methods or various ways which can help you get to the goal. Um, you know, you can try, for example, uh, d devoting yourself to God. If that works for you, fine. But if that doesn't work for you, then move on, find something else. Uh, he's pretty clear about this. It's, it's very much a pragmatic discipline. Mm. And one thing I've personally learned as a, more of a Vajrayana Buddhist practitioner, which again, you know, learned very, very slowly as a matter of degrees in the same kind of way, is this intricate and very subtle interdependence between various meditative states and a subtle body. Now this is clearly axiomatic in the forms of you know, classical yoga and, the, and shadow yoga which we've spoken about. I wonder if you could speak to that interdependence um, you know, without taking five or six years to <laughs> run through everything. And maybe just try and speak about what, when you talk about working with the shadow, what is a shadow yogi or yogini trying to achieve there? Yeah, that is a tricky one. Um, let's see what I can do in, in just a few words. <laughs> of course, the, uh, the um, correct working or functioning of the subtle body is a prerequisite for any kind of, of meditative uh, practice. So the beginner is first taught how, for example, to, um, to place the tongue correctly within the palate. Right? Uh, the tongue is considered to be the um, bridge between the subtle and the physical, because in, um, in uh, well, the uh, yogic anatomy at least, it's both an organ of action and an organ of sensation, uh, and the correct placement of the tongue helps you to, uh, to bring the mind into a state of steadiness. But then one needs to um, 
make sure that all the channels are um, undisturbed and uh, cleared of uh, any uh, sort of psychic or um, emotional um, fluctuations so that uh, the energy can circulate freely. So is that about bringing it into the central channel? Well, that's the, the next stage where, where those circulations are drawn into the central channel. Yeah. Um, by no means easy to do. Um, and, and there are stages beyond this which, which include the use of, uh, let's say, sound or intention or, or, or various visualizations touching different parts of the subtle body uh, which prepare you for various um, stages of meditation. Now, it's difficult to talk about this because we're here approaching um, an area which is largely beyond conceptual, the conceptual framework. So if you look at Patanjali, for example, he, he talks about various stages of, of meditation, the first of which uh, is um, Sampranyata Samadhi, uh, that stage where there's still an object of thought. So the thoughts arise, but they're, they're no longer um, conditioning the, uh, the thinker, the, the one who is aware of them. Um, the stage beyond that, the Asampranyata Samadhi, and these distinctions, I think, are, are also adopted by um, later by, by Vedanta, uh, is without object. So if we don't have any sort of conceptual or discursive thought going on, um, one can only sort of make hints along the way or point in the right direction or, and hopefully, you know, one, one will get there. Uh, like I said, it's tricky business and, and certainly not something that, um, that the average beginner is, uh, is ready for. Uh, unless they already know how to sit um, and already have done the, the uh, clearing, the cleansing and, and the groundwork that, that, that Patanjali has assumed uh, exists prior to the discussion of yoga. Interesting. So it's leading, the, working on the more um, gross and then subtle levels is really just clearing the ground for a more formless... There's a refinement of, yeah. from, that begins with the gross and leads through the, the less gross, through the subtle. Does it ever go the other way, so that one might access something which is, you know, more, just, of course, let's call it Purusha, something like Purusha, that one can then use as a method to um, clear the channels or purify the body in some way? Or is it always one direction? In that well, I think that is that direction, that, that, that we're, we're using the gross, that is to say, elements which, which which properly belong to Prakriti as, as tools that lead you back towards, towards Purusha. Mm. Now there's no sort of direct um, link there for reasons that I've hinted at metaphorically. I mean, this is, if you, if you conceive of this as a, as a light, which is obstructed by, by various things along the way, then, uh, then you have to work backwards from that That's to right, get yeah. back to something original and, and more, more authentic. It's a very excellent answer. I mean, it's a very big topic there, and I think in a couple of minutes you managed to really um, get on top of that. I suppose shifting gears somewhat to uh, what we could call a more social or cultural level, thinking about our conditions here in inner city Melbourne, and, uh, what is a very materialistic frame, a very capitalistic frame. To what degree do you think there is a very big fracture or contradiction between the demands of following a genuine yoga path and the demands of being a kind of successful worldly person in the 21st century. 
does the genuine yogic practitioner have to make some kind of uh, deep inner choice, an, an aesthetic kind of choice perhaps, or a renunciate choice? Or is there a way to kind of integrate the two and balance well, them? One can uh, just as easily quote Western scripture here. Uh, what's that line from the Bible uh, where Jesus says it's more difficult for the rich man to uh, pass through the eye of a needle than it is, sorry, more difficult for the, for the camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or something like that. And one can make the same kind of, uh, of reference to, uh, to yoga here. There are obviously um, things that one has to give up or, or modify, moderate their lives in certain ways um, because you don't get something for nothing, right? Um, having said that, it is possible to uh, practice yoga and, uh, and be authentic in that practice and still live uh, in the modern world. The um, avenue to success is, uh, as I've said before, uh, all you need is to, uh, to do the practice in the way that is instructed by the teacher. Um, you need to investigate on your own the theoretical background uh, of that practice. Um, you need to train, obviously, uh, without fail. You need to uh, reflect on the results of that training in a way that's relevant to you or to your life, and uh, then you need to act on those, those reflections. On the other hand, the uh, the pitfalls along the way or the, um, the road of failure is uh, opened by uh, taking too much food, um, too much exertion, uh, also too much austerity, uh, too much um, keeping the wrong kind of company and too much greed. Um, you might notice that uh, all of these things are, uh, are, are kinds of excess and based on greed wanting uh, that which, which, which is more than one is allotted at any given time. So Patanjali talks about the, um, the restraints and observances. The most important of the observances as far as the uh, yoga is concerned is, um, sorry, the restraints, uh, the yamas, is, uh, is ahimsa, or non-violence, especially non-violence to oneself. So I touched on this a little bit before, um, if, um, if the practice is in done in the wrong way, then, then there are ruptures that can happen or uh, injuries that one can acquire, which uh, rather than taking you towards your goal, uh, ends up taking you much further away. And of course, by extension, um, it's, uh, there's an element in which, in which the non-violence to yourself uh, results in non-violence to others as well. Because of course, you know, we live in a world with others and uh, we have to exist with them and also necessarily barred from them. So it's actually a very demanding ethics there, isn't there? Sure. Which is maybe what I'm trying to get at, that um, if, you know, if you're on a genuine yogic path, it presupposes that ethical Absolutely. orientation, which is actually you know, very demanding. I've not even mentioned the most important one, <laughs> and that is the, uh, the moderate intake of appropriate food, uh, what they call mitahara. So, um, so this means that, that, or what it doesn't mean, is that uh, you have to give up, you know, everything that we enjoy. What it does mean is that you have to pursue that with moderation. Okay. So there are things that you'll find that your body will tell you are are good for you and and 
conducive to uh, to maintaining a, a healthy uh, lifestyle and uh, sound yoga practice. And then there are those which uh, you should avoid. So the texts tell you what these are, they speak of them pretty freely, um, but it's best to find for oneself. Because again, a contextualism. Yeah. So, and often in the Indian traditions, there's obviously meat is a big one, but also things like garlic and onion and these sorts of things. But um, are you saying it might be the case that someone might go quite well with a bit of garlic every now and again, someone else might not? Or is it more prescriptive than that? Well, let's say in Ayurveda, garlic is seen to be a medicine. So like any kind of medicine, you know, if you're sick, it's great. You know, you need to have it. But uh, if you're healthy, there's no reason beyond your, um, your, uh, your fixation on that particular taste. So part of the thing that's going on here with yoga, one of the things we're trying to accomplish is, is to uh, move beyond these sorts of fixations or obsessions. Acknowledge that they're there, but, but, then, but then try to understand that, that they have no power over you. And that, in a way, is a shadow. Well, I don't think shadow should be understood quite that way. Um, let's just say that, um, that, um, that program of yoga forms part of the background of, of shadow yoga as well. Oh, that, that. I mean, I have no idea <laughs> what shadow is meant to imply. I'm just guessing there. Well, one, one common um, misunderstanding that people uh, have is that it's got something to do with the Jungian shadow or, yeah. or something psychological. Uh, and uh, that's, that's a mistake. Although, obviously, with this kind of work, there are, um, are very powerful psychological forces that, that come to the surface. Yeah. So, so it may help you to understand the... Um, the greater theoretical framework as well, but um, that shouldn't be the, uh, the focus. One last question, and this is maybe related to secularism. When we think about yoga in the West, we talked about it um, to some degree, reifying the body and that being problematic in certain ways. I think we could also agree, in, to some degree, it's had to kind of desacralize in order to present itself as something that is accessible and open to people who might have very secularist um, leanings. And that kind of implies stripping all of the more cosmological and esoteric and spiritual elements which conflict with the more scientific, I'll call it scientific rather than scientific, um, view of reality. So I suppose the question is, if going back to you know people who work in the city nine to five and they come to the yoga class um, when they finish work, is it in some ways a sacred space for them to step into? Does it represent um, an, an almost imagined space of um, trying to connect with a sacred that has long been lost in the West? It can be, but I think what, um, what is often the case with Western practitioners of yoga is that they project their own uh, ideas of what, you know, that feeling of, of the sacred might be like onto their experience, uh, and that's a mistake as well. Um, I mean, like I said, have tried to say, uh, yoga is a practical uh, discipline. Um, but whichever way you cut it, uh, in its autochthonous context, uh, it has a um, a religious background, and there's just no escaping that. Um, and I think those those that element of 
or that devotional, let's say, spiritual uh, element of that um, can assist the practitioner, but it is by no means necessary. So, uh, you know, one doesn't have to live like a monk. Um, the, uh, the archetype of the, the monk, the ascetic, the sadhu in Sanskrit, or the, the uh, arhat, the renunciant, is certainly there in, in tradition. But then, on the other hand, a lot of the, the classical texts are written as dialogues between an ascetic, let's say, and a householder. So the message there is that yoga is really appropriate for everybody. Um, that doesn't mean that all those ritual elements have to be, um, ritual devotional elements have to be employed, but, um, but the, uh, the cosmological, metaphysical, theoretical understanding uh, that the space has to be there for that to, uh, to coalesce gradually, to form part of, of the framework for, you, for, you, for the practice. I suppose that does happen from time to time, where uh, almost a bit like your own case, where someone comes into a studio and, you know, with certain expectations in mind, or maybe certain fantasies in mind, but over time those fantasies or imaginings get disabused and what begins to grow and prosper is something which is more of a mature understanding about what they're doing and what the tradition of yoga sure. might offer them and so forth. Sure. So there's, um, you know, people often often ask, well, why do you take off your shoes when you enter a space like this, for example? And there are obviously practical reasons why you might do that. Um, uh, let's say in martial arts, if you're, if you're um, practicing on, on mats, which you, you can't wear shoes on, for example. But then there's also something um, uh, subtle uh, that's going on there too. You're, you're taking off, of divesting yourself of that, that part of, of your life which belongs elsewhere, which belongs out there, uh, when you're entering a space like this. Um, but that it may leave imprints unconsciously, but that really only works if you, if you take the time to, uh, to um, reflect on that. Well, that's actually a very nice way to end. I hope um, all of you take your time to reflect on actually very profound words, Peter. Uh, I'm not sure I was expecting this level of profundity. I would wish I'd done a little bit more reading before the interview because uh, you really covered some very fascinating terrain. So I thank you heartily um, for your great responses and for your time. Thank you, Toby. It was my pleasure. Um, and if you want to learn um, yoga with Peter, his studio is in the city, in Carlton in the city on Queensbury Street. It's called... City Yoga? Uh, that uh, that's right, City Yoga. It's um, right on the corner of Queensbury Street and Leicester Street. Uh, for those of you familiar with the area, very close to Melbourne Uni and the Victoria Markets. And there's a website too which we'll put up under the link. It's uh, cityyoga.com.au. And so that's all we'll say for now. Thank you very much for listening and stay tuned for more podcasts at Arate House. <laughs>